to our little community church. So grateful for that. Uh, recently, uh, as happens in time to time, I don't know if you guys uh, have had this experience too, but if you ever carried so much that you need a break and you need to spend some time with a friend and have nothing on the agenda. Uh, well, while well, well, being new to being an elder and wrestling with a lot of things going on, I needed to have lunch with a friend. And so I texted CJ and I was like, brother, you just come over. Let's just have lunch. Let's not do anything. Let's just spend time and be friends and not wrestle with anything. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm down. That's great. So we grabbed pad thai. We took a break from, from work, from ministry, and we just started to spend some quality time. And it wasn't long until we decided to flip on Netflix. Recently, uh, I had started watching a series called We Are the Champions. Uh, I've really, really enjoyed it. As a matter of fact, I've enjoyed it so much that if you've been to my home in the last few months, we've probably talked about it. It's a show that's produced and narrated by Rain Wilson from The Office, Office fame, yay, Dwight. Uh, and it's about these crazy competitions and the people that compete in these crazy competitions in order to become the champion of it. Uh, the first episode is literally about people running down a really steep hill chasing a wheel of cheese, okay? And this race has been going on in England since the late 1800s. And every year, they throw a cheese wheel down this giant hill, and hundreds of people are running down after it, falling and tripping. I mean, it is disastrous and hilarious. And, you know, if you know anything about Amy and I, you know that we love somebody getting hit in the head. That's just our funny kind of humor. So we, have, we immediately were drawn into this show. Uh, we loved, we were cheering for the winners. We were sad for those who didn't win. We watched several episodes. There's a chili pepper eating competition. There's a dog dancing competition. Uh, let's see here. Oh, fantasy hair competition. People like it's, you guys, if you get a chance, Netflix, family safe, right? Fairly family safe. Yeah. So yeah, flip it on. Enjoy. But what's funny is when CJ came over, I said, Hey brother, you know, do you want to watch an episode of this with me? I want to show this to you. And he watched it and he went, man, that was really good. And he went home and he said, Hey family, you guys, we should watch an episode of this together. And then that family went out and told other people, said, hey, you should watch this show. And suddenly, like, there's a small movement in the Portland metro area of all these families watching this show. Brothers and sisters, what would it mean if we were as excited about sharing Jesus as we were our latest Netflix craze? If we were so impassioned about Jesus that we're like, hey, you guys, I just read this passage, and I can't do anything until I share it. So let me share it with you. So today, in our study, we're going to study what happened to men when they first encountered Jesus, and what happens to us when we encounter Jesus. So if you've been with us, you know that we've been studying the Gospel of John. We've just started it. It's a fantastic account. Uh, so much of John's language is really intimate and personal, and we're going to explore some of those deeply personal moments this morning. If you have your Bible with you, or you're using it via phone or app, you can go ahead and break that out. We're going to be in John chapter 1, and we're going to go verses 35 to 51, the first calling of the disciples. So I'm reading from the ESV, uh, and let's go through this together. 
The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Probably a little bit like that. Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Church, will you pray with me as we dig in? Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you give us wisdom and vision into your word this morning. We ask that the Holy Spirit come upon us and give us the interpretation so that we can understand these words and apply it to our lives. God, we're grateful that you see us and that you love us so much that you give us your word that we can study and chase after you. We're grateful for who you are. We're grateful, Jesus, that you came to be a sacrifice in our place, that you truly were the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Jesus, this morning, we pray that you search our hearts, that you will find anything that keeps us from you, so that we can set it aside and chase you with everything that we have. We thank you for your word, which is enough for us to believe. We thank you for the grace of you revealing yourself to us. And we thank you for your exception, uh, your acceptance of us as your children. And we pray. Amen. So what I love about the Gospel of John is that it does read differently than the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John approaches his gospel a lot like a legal argument. He begins by stating his case or making his opening statement, uh, his mission or his goal. And what's his goal? Well, for 21 chapters, he wants to lay out a plan 
And he wants us, the readers, to know one thing above all else, that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, and he wants for us to experience him. Early in the chapter, as we've already studied, he makes his bold proclamation that Jesus was there in the beginning. And the beginning was the word, and the word was God. The word was with God. So he is stating from the jump, Jesus is the promised Messiah. He follows that by testifying that Jesus became man. And then he starts calling witnesses. He calls his first witness, John the Baptist, lovingly referred to in the rest of my talk as JTB. JTB proclaims that he himself is not the Messiah, but that Christ who is coming is the Messiah. And now John the Evangelist begins to lay out the evidence that backs it all. John's gospel account tells us so much about who Christ is and the impact that he has on all those around him. Those who have truly met and encountered Christ are changed forever. We are going to uncover together over the next few verses are some deeply personal and unique pieces to the gospel message, much like our own conversions. If I were to pause here and ask, and and believe me, brothers and sisters, if time constraint weren't a thing, we would just do it. And I still think, I, I submit to the elders here live in front of the body, that one Sunday it would be a great idea for us just to share all of our conversion experiences. Because what we find from story to story is a very unique encounter with Jesus Christ. Tim was up here sharing earlier his encounter with Christ, and it took years and experiences, and that's how he encountered Jesus. We might hear from some of you that you, like me, were raised in a believing family. You went to church every Sunday, and at one service or one evening, you were convicted and said, I need Jesus. And you made that commitment to lay it all down. It could be a completely different experience. Maybe it was the fact that you were raised in an unbelieving home, that you had not experienced Jesus until the moment that a friend or family member came to you and said, here's some amazing truth. Get to know this Jesus. What I know is that Jesus meets us where we're at. He requires us to bring nothing to the table. And he sees us in our own mess, in our own sin, and says, I love you, I'm calling you. An encouragement that I give to all new members who are going into ministry is this, and Karina, I'll give it to you today. God does not call the equipped, he equips the called. Thank you, Jesus. We don't have to bring perfection and ability. We just have to lean on him. But it's this unique experience that John shares in hopes that we too will believe and accept Jesus as our Lord. We actually get to experience over these 16 verses five different people choosing to follow Jesus. We see it happening in multiple different ways. And then we see a lasting impact that Jesus has on humankind. So let's explore it a little bit together. We start in 35 and 36. The verses say, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. 
The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. The first thing here that I want to point out, when we say disciples, these were people who were disciples of John the Baptist. Likely, this is our author, John the Evangelist, John the Apostle, uh, and Andrew. And John the Baptist happily points them to Jesus so they can experience him and follow the true Messiah. As a great preacher of the time, John the Baptist has attracted disciples, men who hang out with him and want to learn from him. John MacArthur digs in and says it this way, true Israelites, true Jews, believing Jews, knew that they were sinners. John's ministry was a ministry of repentance. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. Now remember, he is confronting a nation of self-righteous people who don't think they need to repent and don't think they need a savior. That would be the dominant view of the world at the time. That was the view of the religious establishment. They were not looking for a lamb or a sacrifice or a savior. They were looking for a king. Boy, were they about to be surprised. John preached wrath and he preached repentance and he pointed to the Christ and said, this is the lamb and the sacrifice for your sin. People would hear this and they knew they needed to repent and they knew they needed a sacrifice for their sin. Perhaps these men, this small group of fishermen, even understood the full impact of Isaiah 53. There was one coming who would be wounded for their transgressions, crushed for their iniquities. They would have to understand the sacrificial system pointing to a full and final sacrifice. So when John says those beautiful words, behold the Lamb of God, that may not have registered with the populace as a whole, but it registered with those who had a true understanding of the scriptures. This is also an example of John's later words, he must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist was saying that he was now sending his followers to follow the true Messiah. It takes a special person, a great man or great woman, to encourage your followers to follow someone greater than you. Even so, we know that John continued to attract disciples until his death and beyond. And so, John and Andrew began to follow Jesus. In 37 through 39, it says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, and I love this, we're going to see this over and over, come and you will see. So when they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him, I stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Note that these two people are following Jesus but it's Jesus who begins the conversation. Jesus turns around and sees them. He asks what they want. And at first, this might seem like a really simple question. What are you seeking? But when you think about this question from the standpoint of calling a disciple, well, the deeper form of the question might be, what are you looking for by following Jesus? They respond by calling him a teacher and asking where he's staying. The Gospel of John originally is written in Greek. And the Greek word for stay is meno, which means they were asking where he was going to uh, permanently reside. They wanted to know where they could continuously find and meet with Jesus. And I love his answer. It's come and see. Doesn't give them an address, doesn't make an appointment. He invites them to come along and experience walking with him in a real way. That's still Jesus today. He invites us to journey with him, to follow him, and in the process to learn from him. And in essence, tells us what it means to be a disciple. 
Mark's gospel tells us in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. If we want to become close followers of Jesus, we actually have to invest time and spend that time with him. We have to seek him out in our daily lives. It's not enough to add Jesus as an afterthought. We have to lay it all down to follow him. In verses 40 through 42, he says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Only two places, by the way, in Scripture where we'll find this term for Messiah. We'll find it here and later in John chapter 4.25. This is powerful language. By saying Messiah, they're not just saying leader. They're not just saying, this is my new person who I'm going to follow. They're saying, this is the one. It is on. All of the promises, all of the prophecies, everything that we have been waiting for, he is here. This is the Messiah. So Andrew uh, then brings Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So John and Andrew, they are all in. They've experienced Jesus in the flesh, and Andrew can't contain himself. He goes home, grabs his brother Simon, and tells him, We found him, the Messiah. You have to come and experience this. And he does. Simon meets Jesus himself. And from the moment that Peter met Jesus, he realized that Jesus already knew everything about him. So much so that Jesus tells him, Simon, you know what? I know who you are. I'm calling you to follow me. I know who you'll become. And I'm going to give you a name that fits you better. Peter, the rock. So when we come to Jesus by faith and begin to follow him, He gives us a new name. He changes us and makes us more like himself. Some of us could be called a thief or a liar. Some of us could be called an adulterer, a slave, a sinner. But in Christ, we're a new creation, and he gives us a new name. Not sinner, not slave. He calls us beloved and chosen and adopted into his family. When we encounter Jesus, it changes everything about who we are from the inside out. 43 through 45. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law, sorry, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This conversion story is different on so many levels. Andrew and John have heard the proclamation of JTB. They were in. Peter was told about Jesus by his brother. But here, Jesus is in Galilee and reveals himself to Philip. And brothers and sisters, don't miss this part. Philip 
is able to recognize Jesus because he knew his scripture. He believed the Old Testament was God's word and he recognized the truth of Jesus. Because he knew the scripture, he was able able to recognize Jesus and not be led astray. Here at the well, do you know who knows their scripture? Probably as a group, the best in our church. It's our youth group. I have been blessed by the youth group and their desire to know the word. We have seen Carter and Taj and Gabby and Isaiah share up here because they dug into the word and they know what Jesus left for them to learn. There are students like Janae Conte who can tell you the origin of where those scrolls were found. Our youth group has a heart, has a heart for scripture. I don't want to, to take shots at anybody else or any, how anybody else wants to do youth group. But our youth group does not focus on big events and flashy things so that we can bring in the masses and get the right numbers. Our youth group focuses on knowing the person and work of Jesus Christ and knowing his scripture in the depths of their heart. I'm reminded that when they came back from ETV, our youth group was greeted by a false teacher, by a protester who was screaming loud on a megaphone and shouting things that were unbiblical, that had deceived this individual. Quoting scripture, abusing scripture, and really, like in that moment, our youth gets back from this great camp and are greeted by someone who is telling things that are not true about our Savior. But our youth group is anchored in the word. And I watched as multiple members of our youth group walked up to this individual and said, okay, you're you're, you're quoting scripture? Let's dance. Because I know Jesus. I have experienced him. It's not enough that I was just converted, but I am learning what these words mean. So you want to try to lead me astray? I know what the Bible says about who I am, and I know what the Bible says about who Jesus is. That is a call, brothers and sisters, that we chase and that we put ourselves and we study Scripture the way that our youth do. That is a challenge, and it is an exciting challenge that we have a young generation who is rooted in God's word. Now, when telling Nathaniel about Jesus, Philip references Moses, the law, and the prophets. Nathaniel's experience was significantly different as well. He responds to Philip with this, verse 46. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. All right, I'm not supposed to say this, but I did in first service. I'm going to do it again. When discussing this with the other elders on Friday, someone may or may not have mentioned, insert Gresham there, (laughs) followed by the obligatory Vancouver, Hillsborough, fill-in-the-city jokes. But remember where this is happening, that in Judea, they looked down on Galilee, and Galilee looked down on Nazareth. The humility of the Christ coming in this way is unmistakable. 
Jesus, as we shared in our Christmas message, he could have plugged himself into any family, any royalty, any big ticket city he wanted. And he continues to humble himself. What I love about this verse is the resolve of Philip, though. He tells Nathaniel, hey, listen, I get it. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and check it out. Come and see. See for yourself. And Jesus never disappoints. Our scriptures end like this. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You know, the the verbiage, an Israelite indeed, uh, in whom there is no deceit, takes us back to the Old Testament. It takes us back to the original Israel, Jacob. And Jacob had a pretty significant issue with deceit. He lied to Isaac. And he claimed to be Esau so he could get his blessing. He was later deceived by Laban when he was forced to marry Leah instead of Rachel. Jacob's sons deceived him, saying Joseph was killed when they sold him into slavery. So this statement both tells Nathaniel that Christ sees him and knows who he is. Stan mentioned in our meeting that Jesus always sees us in our striving, in our sin, and in our need. And he loves us in that. Nathaniel had accepted the invitation to come and see without letting his own prejudice get in the way of seeking Jesus. Nathaniel's encounter with Jesus transforms him from skeptic to believer. Nathaniel is shocked by Jesus' knowledge of him, and now he's seen Jesus for himself rather than taking Philip's word for it. And Jesus has wowed him. By proclaiming Jesus, Son of God and King of Israel, Nathan confesses that truly God is the Son of God, that he is his Messiah. And Jesus' response is amazing. It might read a little sarcastic or tongue-in-cheek, but it's more like a foreshadowing of all that Jesus is about to show, not only Nathaniel, but us as followers and believers. The disciples have already been changed just by interacting with Jesus. But as they spend more time with him, the glory of God, the glory of the Christ, is about to be shown. Next up in John, we're going to be studying the wedding at Cana, and we're going to see Jesus perform his first miracle. After that will come the cleansing of the temple. After that, he's going to show them the way of salvation, and he's going to give himself up as a sacrifice. He is our Savior, and he is proving himself to be the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. So what do we take away from this and how do we apply it? I loved what Justin said when we were going over the scriptures together. He said that Jesus has never handled any two people alike. And when he looks at Andrew, Andrew was cautious. Peter was impetuous. Philip was shy. Nathaniel was honest. Jesus spoke differently to each of them. He understood them. He took them for what they were. 
He didn't try to make them all fit into a pattern or a mold. He treated them like the unique people he created them to be. And each conversion experience as a result was different. John and Andrew heard the word from John the Baptist and believed. John was so impacted that he spent the rest of his life following Jesus, preaching to the lost, and writing this gospel for you and me. Andrew was so impacted that his first response was to go and tell his brother Peter. Philip was found and called by Jesus directly. Nathaniel was skeptical, but after a real encounter with the Savior, he was forever changed. You see, once you have truly encountered Jesus, things can never be the same. These were ordinary men, nothing unique or special about them. Not especially intelligent, not especially gifted. They were just like you and me. Jesus could have called his disciples from any group that he happened to be with, and they would have been successful as apostles, just as he made these men to be. That's because the secret does not lie in us, but in Jesus who calls us, the Lord who created us. He uses us and makes us into what he wants us to be. That leaves us a moment of response. First, to those who believe in Jesus, does the Holy Spirit, alive in your life, inspire come-and-see moments? Do the people around you see the fruit of the Spirit alive in you? My in-laws came to visit this last week, and my mother-in-law was reminding me that too often people who claim Jesus just try to fit him into their already busy lives. They don't lay everything down and chase him. When you take a look at your life, is the fruit of the Spirit on display? I think I can do it without singing the song. In kids' church, that's how we remember the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Oh, oh. Uh, is that on display in front of the people around us, to our neighbors, to our family, to our friends, on our social media? Do people see love? Are we reaching out and loving those around us and loving them well, showing the care and the genuine trust that Jesus did? Do they see joy, which we told you a couple of weeks ago was extreme happiness despite present circumstance? Do they see joy in us? What about peace? Do they see us as peacemakers and people who want to bring people together and share Jesus above our personal agendas? Do they see us as people who have patience with people who are different than us, who see the world differently, who have a different opinion? Do we show patience to people who have not yet experienced Jesus and are still a slave to their sin? Or do we put our expectation on people who are lost that they're supposed to act as believers do? Do we show genuine kindness when dealing with someone in need and goodness? Do we show faithfulness to seek Jesus in spite of our present circumstances? No matter how difficult whatever in front of us is, are we faithful to seek Christ first and lay everything else down? And when we see someone who is in sin or in struggle, are we showing gentleness in correction? Are we showing gentleness in the way that we interact? Or are we quick to drop a truth grenade and walk away as someone has left 
with the shame of what's just been revealed to them? And do we have self-control? Self-control enough to show these fruits of the Spirit and to deny ourselves and our own agendas? Or do we take a me-first mentality to the things in our life? In Matthew 16, 24 through 26, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Brothers and sisters, please don't confuse this message as a challenge to perform or a dare to perfection. Jesus doesn't call us to that. It's instead a call to accept Christ's grace and forgiveness in a real way. When we fall short, allow the Holy Spirit to spur us to confession and forgiveness. When someone wrongs us and they come to us with a humble heart and say, I have failed you, I have sinned, I have sinned against you, that we are quick to forgive our brothers and sisters. It's a reminder and a call to lay down our struggles, to lay down our difficulties. It's a reminder that Jesus is our rescue. But this morning, brothers and sisters, if you find yourself on a different part of this story and you have not experienced a real conversion with Jesus, if you have not experienced your life being changed because the Savior did this thing for you, I beg you, lay it all down. Lay down your life. The things that you're chasing after are nothing in comparison to the beauty of a life with our Savior. I remind you, as I said at the very beginning, we bring nothing to the table. When talking about uh, Philip and his, I'm sorry, Nathaniel and his experience, Jesus told him, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. You may not truly know Jesus, but let me tell you, brothers and sisters, he knows you. He doesn't need you to bring your great experience and talents and hard work to the table. He needs you to lay everything down and chase after him. What a beautiful message for the first of our new year. A call, a reminder to say, Jesus, you are great. You are worthy. And all this other stuff needs to be laid aside. Will you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, we recognize now in this moment that we have nothing to offer but ourselves. We recognize that as people, we have fallen short in every opportunity that we've been given. But we recognize, Jesus, that you saw us when we were lost, that you know us, and that you have a plan for us. So Jesus, dig into our hearts. Holy Spirit, find in us anything that would keep us from you. We beg that you would convict us of our sin, that we would be quick to confess it, and that we would chase the glory of our Savior, our Messiah, our risen rescuer, Jesus Christ. 
This morning, God, we tell you, we are not worthy, and yet you have called us, and for that, we say thank you and amen. Lord, we ask that you inspire our hearts that as we leave this place today, that we are reminded of our encounters with you and that we get so excited that we are required to tell others the things that you are doing. Jesus, we pray that you would just come upon our city, that it be a time of revival, that your name would be cried out on the streets of Portland, that you would be the one that every eye turns and worships. Christ, we know you're coming back and we are anxious to see you. But prepare our hearts and help us prepare those around us for that. In your name we pray. Amen.